Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really interesting founder joining us. You know, we have a founder that, uh, you know, is going to be telling us about what he's doing with his rocket ship now with his company. You know, it's a founder that has experienced everything, you know, being in corporate, being, you know, part of acquisitions, being part of taking companies public. And obviously, you know, what he's doing now is uh, is pretty interesting, too. So I guess uh, let's take it from there. So without further ado, let's welcome Amar Kendala. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. It's so great to be here. So originally you were born in New York, but a child of immigrant parents. You know, I'm sure that that was quite inspiring to see them, you know, uh, really working hard to give you guys a better life. So how was life growing up? Give us a little of a walk through memory lane. Absolutely. Yeah, I grew up in a suburb of New York City. Uh, with my parents who immigrated here from India in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. And my, my father was an executive uh, with an engineering background in a, in a multinational. Uh, and I used to go with him to work uh, to his office in, in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and um, you know, was really inspired by the kind of work he was doing. Uh, he told me he was an engineer. You know, it wasn't until years later I found out that he was the head of sales and marketing at that company. But uh, what really stuck with me was the fact that, uh, that you know, as an engineer, you could have so much impact. You could uh, work on really big problems. And, um, and so that's what got me started. Uh, I think I, I clung to that idea of being an engineer just like my dad uh, you know, all the way through college and ultimately graduated from MIT with my mechanical engineering degree. So then, so then let's talk about that. So you go into MIT, you know, you do engineering, you know, the community there, you know, was saying quite inspiring to you. I mean, the people that you met and, and also the network that you built, which would serve you, you know, really nicely down the line. So how was that the case? Yeah, it's, it's true. And, uh, you know, I was at MIT uh, in, in the late 90s and the uh, early 2000s, which, of course, is, you know, during the dot-com boom. And so uh, it was a great place to be as, as technology was exploding. A lot of my classmates were... Uh, in computer science or heading into computer science, attracted to you know this this huge wave of innovation that was coming. Uh, I took a little bit of a contrarian uh, perspective. You know, one being in the mechanical engineering discipline, you know, it forced me instantly to think about other things and work on other kinds of problems. But it also allowed me to meet very different kinds of people. And so while I was at MIT, I spent a lot of time at the Sloan School taking classes. That's the business school there. 
uh, and fell in with a group of very diverse entrepreneurs, uh, Carmichael Roberts being one of them, uh, who was, was doing his MBA after his postdoc at Harvard. Uh, and I was also in the process of starting a new life science company. Uh, he was spinning it out from Harvard with a professor named George Whitesides, one of the, the most eminent professors in, in the field of chemistry. And uh, I was drawn in to this idea that um, you know, even though I, as an engineer, uh, had a very different background, I could work with, with scientists, you know, chemists, biologists, and others to do something really impactful in the life sciences. So it really opened up a, an entirely new uh, facet and domain. Uh, for me, you know, while a lot of my, my peers were headed off into .com. So you you definitely, you know, headed off into the engineering side of things, you know, because that's uh, essentially what you did with Surface Logics. So so in this case, you know, like what was what 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 was like that first, you know, entering the, you know, professional, you know, market and 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 obviously that company ended up getting acquired, but uh, but how was that for you? Yeah, it, it was a it was a, a life changing experience, and um, and part of you know the lessons I could take away in in those early years of my career were around uh, working with a intellectually rigorous team of of very cross disciplinary people. So at this company, uh, I mentioned we had chemists, we had biologists, we had engineers like myself, um, we had material scientists, we had business people. And uh, many had come from various academic postings. And so the level of rigor, the level of, of, uh, of kind of uh, intellectual horsepower is extremely high. Um, we we're working on meaningful problems in the life sciences, focused initially on drug discovery uh, and later on drug development. And, um, and probably the most important lessons I took away were that really hard problems often require this sort of very first principles approach, you know, almost scientific approach, even to business problems. And uh, I think that's gone on to serve me really well uh, in subsequent chapters of my career. Uh, the other thing I've really come to appreciate and learned at Surface Logics was that this, this diversity of thought, you know, having this kind of really broad group of people working together on a common problem uh, had enormous power. And, you know, especially in a world where, where the tendency is to silo and focus on a particular discipline or a particular area, uh, that cross-functional teams, you know, can actually innovate uh, across the boundaries, and that's ended up being another theme uh, throughout my career. So, how do you how do you pass from you know just like being just focused on the engineering side of it to all of a sudden you know like you kind of like are open to the idea of of figuring you know other aspects of the business you know marketing and in other areas of getting closer to the customer you know like how was that transition mm -hmm. for you? Yeah, so you know I was that I was that annoying engineer who just couldn't stop asking why. And so, you know, uh, the, the, I think the very often engineers get sort of typecast, you know, into this idea that they're told what to do and then they go build it. And, you know, that all their creativity is, is sort of channeled towards the, the solution, you know, the how to go build the solution. But I was very intrigued by this question of why were we building what we were building? And, uh, you know, had we really understood, do we really understand the problem well enough to be building the right thing in the first place? And uh, I think that that curiosity, um, you know, one, the, the company, you know, indulged me and they, they answered my questions, you know, so I could, I could uh, connect with the founders, I could connect with the leadership, the investors, the CEO, uh, and learn, you know, and, and understand why the decisions were being made that we were, we were making around which products to build and which customers to call on. Um, so that spark was lit and it was something that uh, I took with me into my, into my next experience. Um, I went to Guidant, which is a Fortune 50 medical device company. Um, 
in order to in order to really uh, accelerate the pace of of product delivery, you know, going from sort of a ten year product cycle, which you often experience in life sciences, to a a two or three year product cycle in medical devices. So that was very exciting to me. And there, I uh, I was in a position where I could work directly with the customer. So um, much of my time was spent in the operating room, directly with cardiac surgeons, watching them do procedures. And seeing not only uh, what they were doing and hearing what they said, but really understanding what was missing. And I think that's become a really important skill for me as well, which is it's so often the case that it's not what your customers tell you that they want, but really more what they don't say and where they're you know, avoiding pitfalls or avoiding challenging areas simply because they, they haven't yet articulated a problem. And, uh, and, if, and if, if we can find that problem for them and define it in a way that we can then solve it, uh, you know, there's something really unique to offer. Now, one thing that is very interesting here is that you ended up moving to Arsenal Medical, which was the immediate step for you to come, you know, and 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 move to to California. So, how was that thought process of all of a sudden you landing in California? Well, it was actually guidance that brought me to California, and uh, and and that was very much around um, experiencing a different work culture and uh, and business culture. You know, um, where it started out in Boston, you know, often has very heavy academic leanings in the businesses that get started and and the pedigree of the people who start them. Uh, Silicon Valley, of course, has this this uh, a different kind of innovators culture. Uh, you know, as much about learning by doing. And so my mentor. Um, who took me under his wing in California, Al Chin, uh, had sold his company to Guidant, but it continued to innovate in that same style of very much being a, a, a player coach and spending uh, every Friday himself in the lab uh, building new devices. So, you know, I think what, what he inculcated me is that West Coast style of innovation, which is build a prototype every week. It doesn't matter that we're in medical devices as an industry. That doesn't mean that we need, we need to move slowly. Uh, we can find places to, to work quickly and innovate quickly. Um, I went back to Boston uh, in part to, to, to build a family. And so having family in the Northeast, it was a, it was a good reason to go back. The other reason it was, it was opportunistic and timely was I could reconnect with the same group of entrepreneurs that were at Surface Logics. So uh, George Whitesides, Carmichael Roberts, this time adding uh, uh, to the trio, Bob Langer, a professor at MIT, you know, the father of, of tissue engineering and drug delivery and many other fields, um, really took on their next mission, which was to say, how can we use novel materials uh, in order to create new medical devices? So here was this opportunity to work with a group I'd worked with and now parlay this skill set and this experience that I'd built in medical devices at Guidant and bring it to this new startup. So really kind of merge those things, the momentum I'd built with this team I'd worked with before and the experience I could capitalize on uh, from having done some of this work myself directly. So how do you go from there to all of a sudden, you know, like thinking that maybe you want to launch something of your own? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, there was one step along the way, but before launching on my own, and that was um, that was that I, I I did feel strongly that I wanted to move towards faster and faster product cycles. So, you know, I mentioned drug discovery and and biotech can be a five to ten year, really a ten years product cycle. Medical devices, if you're on the fast edge of it, it's two to three years. Um, I met uh, a group of entrepreneurs uh, starting a new company called Livongo that was focused on on software. Uh, as being really the sort of uh, pacing variable, you know, the, the time constant for, for new things. And, um, and that was very appealing to me. This was, a, this was a, a place where there was a big focus on the consumer experience and the ways we could use software to enable that consumer experience. 
couple it with medical devices so we could be sure that we were doing things that were clinically sound and robust and were going to be accurate when it came to people's own health. Uh, and, um, and I met Livongo uh, just after uh, they'd raised their Series A of financing. I was introduced to them by uh, their their um, investor, Hamut Taneja, who's now leading the firm General Catalyst. And Hamut, um, you know, asked me to, to to meet the team and and see if there was uh, something interesting that we could we could do together, coupling my experience in medical devices uh, with with what what they were aiming to do, which was build a great new consumer experience. And so um, so I joined them in 2014 to lead business development uh, again with this idea that I wanted to be close to the customer and uh, learn from the best. So my mentors there were the CEO, Glenn Tallman, uh, and uh, a member of their board, Lee Shapiro, both of whom had together built the company Allscripts over the course of the prior decade. Uh, Allscripts is a company where, where M&A was uh, a very key element to their success and, and doing great partnerships was a key to their success. So I had the opportunity my first year and a half at Livongo, building a lot of our foundational partnerships. Uh, particularly channel partnerships across our, our our big three channels, reaching employers, providers, and uh, and, and um, being able to access the influencers, uh, the benefits consultants um, who help them make those decisions. So then, uh, I I want to hear you know like what happened to with the company that uh, that you tried to launch and uh, you know all of a sudden you guys got stuck on the Series A. You know that that actually happened before Levango. So so why why don't we, why don't we talk about this business that, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, like you get excited about launching your own thing and then all of a sudden you guys get stuck on Series A. So the company I was, uh, got very excited about was one I, I was looking to, to work on again with, with my former mentor, Al Chin, um, who had been a founder of Origin Med Systems. And he and uh, uh, one of his close colleagues, Mike Glennon, uh, had built an incubator. And Al, uh, having left Gaiden at that point, was innovating at the same rapid pace that he had been at Gaiden. So every week, a new prototype. And Al had invented a novel mechanism for uh, addressing uh, a critical pathway uh, in obesity and in metabolic dysfunction. And it was a very novel technology uh, and very creative in its deployment. Um, and so the Mike and Al brought me in to spin this technology out and build a company around it. So I uh, I, I I was I was up for the challenge. It was gonna be my first opportunity to, to to run a company. And so my first job, of course, was was raising money and uh, assembling a team. Um, but the raising money actually proved to be uh, really challenging. You know, we we built I think a, a a very compelling business case for for the size of the problem when it comes to metabolic disease and and the impact it has on society. Uh, we demonstrated some very compelling data around a proof of concept using this innovative technology that Al had developed. And, uh, and yet, uh, as, as we were working our way through the fundraising process, uh, the largest company in the obesity space shut its doors. So this is a company called Satiety. And they went out of business. They'd raised something like $100 million. And it, was, uh, it, it basically cast a pall over the whole space. You know, all the funding in that obesity intervention space dried up almost overnight. And so, um, you know, this was a, a very difficult time in my career, probably the most difficult time, you know, where after spending six months pounding the pavement and, uh, you know, just beginning to feel like I was making some traction, you know, for essentially the, the market to, to cool off um, was, was quite a blow. Um, uh, but, but yet, you know, I, I, think, I think back to the, the sort of under, underlying um, skills and, that I developed over the period of time. I think that's probably where I really developed uh, the resilience uh, as a salesperson, 
to to not accept no uh, as as a final answer, you know, to to maintain that kind of uh, persistence and to not give up. Um, uh, you know, lo- long past, perhaps long past, uh, uh, you know, the, the time a normal person might might concede concede defeat. Um, ultimately, though, you know, it, it did it did make sense to 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 call it. And uh, how how do you, how do you get to that point to call it? Because I mean, that's saying it takes it takes something, you know, to to get to that point. Yeah, I I think that um, I think that I had knocked on every door is, is really the answer, Alejandro. I, you know, I think I I'd, I'd uh, worked a, a pretty extensive network that I had and that my co-founders had uh, in terms of accessing accessing capital, um, considering the ways we might might pivot or reorient. I, I think you know the the um, I think the hard truth there also that I really came to appreciate was. That um, especially, especially when the market chills in a space, that it's it's not easy to to it doesn't thaw overnight. You know that no matter how compelling an idea is, that the the nature of the sort of time cycles for investment in a given space are longer than an entrepreneur's life cycle, and there's that mismatch. You know, oftentimes where um, the opportunity costs of continuing to push something forward when there's no clarity as to when the window might open, the opportunity cost starts to rise. And I think that's really what I perceived was that, um, that as an, uh, you know, continue to push on this, you know, while, while I believed in the idea and, and its potential, um, that the window, there was no line of sight to when the window would open again. Now, obviously, you know, I, I always call it, you either succeed or you learn. So incredible learnings here. Now, in your case, you were talking about it. I mean, you eventually, you know, land in Liwango. And uh, that was, you know, a fun, phenomenal journey where the company went public and then the company ended up getting acquired. What kind of visibility do you think that gave you into, into success, into success when it comes to, you know, a hyper growth company like that? Uh, so, I, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of what I learned was that, um, that so often, it, it, you know, the, the stories that we hear, um, you know, often dramatize the breakthroughs. And uh, I would say that the, in retrospect, that there were not a lot of, of discrete breakthroughs at Livongo, but there was a lot of uh, persistence of vision. And I think consistency in performance. So um, despite the fact that we were a very innovative company, I'd say that the DNA of Livongo was in many ways very operational. It was very much a day in day out. What have we done today? You know, what is what is on the immediate horizon? And so while we placed longer term bets and took some big swings, uh, we took you know we took as many there was as many successes as there were failures. You know, we had a, um, a a track record there where you know when we look back and cherry pick, it looks like all the right call all along. But I'd say that really the the, the success uh, factors at Livongo were really about about grinding, and I think building a culture. Um, I think that the leadership there built a, a culture that was very deliberate when it came to staying operationally focused and not getting distracted by the flashy objects, you know, the shiny objects and and uh, emerging trends, but really staying focused on our on our end user and our clients and uh, and delivering for them day in and day out. Um, for me, that was actually a really big learning, Alejandro, especially having come from you know what I would call like more glamorous technology driven startup environments where the latest technology was a big part of of where the sort of impetus came you know in those in those businesses 
Um, and you know, I, I think it's it's uh, uh, something that's very easy, especially as a technologist, to fall into, right? Fall in love with a technology and have a vision and see its potential. Uh, and I think Livongo really um, woke me up to the fact that while that can be successful sometimes, the more predictable way to drive towards success is that incremental, steady progress of knocking down problems that your users are facing. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domains. I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety value and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. And in your case, I mean, obviously the, the, the exposure here and also the experience at Livongo, you know, ended up landing you the role of chief product officer at Teladoc, which ended up acquiring the company. And you were there helping with the integration. But how did that lead to you saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to go at it again. And that ended up, you know, becoming Homeward, your latest mm -hmm. baby. My latest baby. Yes. So uh, at, at, during my time at Livongo, uh, we did have a very deliberate view of the impact we could have on people with chronic conditions. And uh, a lot of this um, I developed in partnership with, with Jenny Schneider, who had been initially the chief medical officer at Livongo and was ultimately the president there. Uh, and Jenny and I fairly quickly established this this sort of shared vision of how the core ideas that we had developed for 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 caring for people with diabetes, really around bringing them information, making it easy, making it consistent on a regular use basis, providing them with information they could act on, creating feedback loops so that we could constantly improve, that those concepts were extensible to other clinical areas. And so it's how we built a roadmap at Livongo that took us from diabetes to hypertension, to high cholesterol, heart failure, kidney disease, mental health. Uh, and so um, we went from having a product to a portfolio. Uh, we evolved the business from serving one customer segment, which was employers, to serving others, including health plans. Uh, all of that led us at Livongo to ultimately being a platform company focused on chronic conditions. And so, you know, that, that final chapter of Livongo was our acquisition by Teladoc. And it was at a moment when uh, there was a recognition that the combination of, of this sort of technology-enabled chronic condition management coupled with telemedicine could be something really radically different in terms of the way we could serve people um, with health needs. And so, you know, Teladoc perceived it, we perceived it. It led to the, the, the acquisition of, of Livongo by Teladoc. Uh, you know, at the time, the largest acquisition in, in digital healthcare, uh, $18.5 billion deal. Um, I went in as a chief product officer, and my main job was to integrate the teams and integrate the products. And so 
I spent about six months doing that, and uh, the, the team uh, was on great footing uh, when I left, and and we were sort of starting to move in the direction of fulfilling the promise of what happens when you can couple doctors who can actually prescribe medication and change medications and give them access to this really great data that's being generated by the cons- you know by the user, our members, the consumer. Uh, in their daily life, you know, at the point of care, at the point where they can have real impact, you know, on on, on those individuals' lives. So that was the promise, and I think the the there's you know a, a long journey ahead. The company's moving in, in that direction, broadly speaking. Um, what what I believed uh, as I as I left, and and the the things that um, that my partner Jenny and I started to work on after I left were uh, really thinking about that next generation of healthcare and and where it was going to be focused. And we had a, a few things that really emerged for us as being critical in order um, to build on our learnings, but really evolve evolve where healthcare is headed and accelerate. One was we we developed a strong conviction that we need to align incentives structurally between patients and and uh, practitioners, so providers and payers. And very typically, we found that two of those were often aligned, but never three, you know, whether the patient and the provider had a good relationship or the provider and the payer had a good relationship at Livongo, we managed to align the payer and the patient, but, uh, but we, we recognize that we actually need to align all three and in order to be successful. Uh, we also appreciated that we'd learned so much about the application of technology to these kinds of healthcare problems, that there was an entire class of problems that could be solved. If we could do novel things with, with existing technology and the third thing we were very passionate about was focusing on underserved populations, places where we could really have an impact, address you know the double, triple, quadruple bottom line sort of aspect of of healthcare, and um, and so that's really what ultimately led us to shaping Homeward. Uh, thesis wise, we were confident that primary care is going to become more and more segmented, that people are going to experience primary care that's really for them, and that over time this trend's going to accelerate. So rather than a one size fits all. Uh, I, I go to a doctor who's part of a health system and I get whatever care I get. Instead, we'll see the emergence of brands and uh, and those will speak to consumers and offer tailored care for the types of health needs that they may have based on, based on who they are and where they live and what they do. Uh, we're also going to see that specialty care, think, you know, cardiology, oncology, these high cost, uh, extremely highly trained, highly skilled professionals, they're currently physically chained to a hospital or a health system or an office. So COVID taught us that those people can be uncoupled, that they can essentially be abstracted into the cloud. And as long as they have great data, they can build a great relationship with their patient and deliver great care. So specialty care, in our thinking, can be virtualized. Over time, it's going to move in that direction. And we're going to unlock this sort of finite, scarce resource and make it more widely accessible. So it was those two ideas that really became the basis of Homeward. The segment we focused on is actually a huge one. It's the 60 million. Uh, Americans who live in rural communities. So this is about 20% of America. And from an outcomes perspective, it is dramatically underserved. So we have 23% higher mortality in this population. And as we dug deeper into this problem, we learned was a lot of it has to do with insufficient supply of primary care. So there's about half as many primary care doctors serving rural Americans as there are for suburban and urban Americans. And therefore, we're seeing uh, a massive shortfall of preventive care. The other thing we see, and it relates to our second thesis, is that there's an eighth as many specialists. So you can imagine that if you have heart disease 
and uh, and you're, it's it's a complex condition, and you can't see a cardiologist for six months. Well, you might not have six months. And if you live in a rural community today, that might be your reality. So how do we bridge you know, space and time to bring that cardiology expertise to you in a way that can save your life? So those were really the things that made it very compelling for us uh, to focus on Homeward. And so uh, Jenny and I uh, started this company uh, in 2021 with the backing of General Catalyst, Payment Taneja, who had been that backer at, at Livongo in the very early days as well. Um, supported us in helping to shape the thesis and, and start the company. And since then, we've been off to the races. Nice. So then how do you guys make money? What's the business model? Yeah. So uh, as a value-based care provider, uh, we make money when we save money. Uh, so the, the gist of it is our incentives are aligned with our patient and our payer. And a value-based care model is one in which uh, we operate as a, as a provider who takes full risk on the population we manage. So 100% of the medical costs are, you know, are delegated to us by a payer. And it's our job to make sure that one, we're keeping this population healthy and we're measuring progress along the way through tracking our, our clinical quality and, and progress. But more definitively, we're tracking our progress by, by avoiding negative healthcare consequences, which are also driving high cost. So the early signals we look for are, have you been able to keep people out of the emergency room? Have you been able to keep people out of the hospital? And the fact is, if we are doing a good job of diagnostics and preventive care, the answer is going to be yes. And it's something that's pretty uniquely enabled by these value-based care models, where in traditional healthcare, uh, where providers get paid for the services they deliver, not the outcomes, they're incentivized uh, to take on more of those high-cost procedures. They're disincentivized to take on low-cost, low-value things, which preventive care is mostly in that category. So that shifting that incentive is actually a really important fulcrum in value-based care models, and it's one that allows us to lean into preventive care. So uh, the way that Homeward works is, is we, we take responsibility for a population. We go very hard at, at helping to characterize the needs of that population from a preventive care perspective. And then we field all the right interventions to keep those individuals from progressing in their conditions or diseases and from ultimately ending up in acute scenarios that can be uh, both bad for the patient and also very high cost. And how much capital, you were talking about General Catalyst Day before, how much capital have you guys raised to date from investors? So uh, so the the Series A, we raised uh, $20 million and we went on to raise another $50 million or so in our Series B. Uh, the, the, the great news is with, with such strategic backers as General Catalyst, and we went on to bring on Human Capital and Arch as uh, investors in our, in our Series B, um, you know, we've really thought about this business as one that we're building for the long term. And I think that's one of the great things about investors who have a long-term mindset and, uh, and the mentality that the goal is to solve the problem and that financing is a means to an end. And that, you know, as long as we, as long as we're building in a paced way that demonstrates real results for people, that we can continue to think big and think about the bigger problems we're trying to solve. So we've been able to, to I think, uh, secure this, this uh, very like-minded, values-driven group of investors uh, to support the company. And that's a big part of why we raised our Series B preemptively uh, in August of last year. Now, obviously, you know, when you're speaking with investors, you got to talk about vision. Mm -hmm. So if we're thinking about vision, imagine, you know, if you were to go to sleep tonight 
and you wake up in a world where the vision of Homeworld is is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, you know, I'd say that the, the this vision it leaves us with a lot of headroom. So, you know, first and foremost, you know, we're focused on the needs of people in rural America. And as I mentioned, this is 60 million people in America uh, that have a, a similar category of, of problems in the sense that they're generally speaking geographically dispersed and therefore their physical proximity to care uh, is simply just not as convenient as it is for people in urban and suburban environments. And then that results in a lot of downstream consequences. Um, you know, our, our vision would be for, for that group of people to have healthcare outcomes that are just as good as the rest of America, if not better. And I think that if not better is actually an interesting thing to think about, Alejandro, because the models we're exploring and innovating in um, are designed expressly for rural communities. So, for example, uh, we're really pushing the frontier of care as far into the community as possible. We see people in their homes. Uh, we use uh, mobile clinics in order to see people in their communities so we can move a mobile clinic around. Uh, we uh, deploy uh, very asset light, small footprint clinics in existing built space in ways that are extremely nimble. So you can think about this as uh, as analogous to the way that we've leapt from kind of mainframes, you know, to computers to smartphones, where we've really pushed the edge of the network really far out, and we've moved a lot of that power out to the end user. Imagine if we could do that in healthcare. If we could push all of that capability out, you know, from these hospitals, which are centralized, into the palm of people's hands and into their homes and their daily lives. So the 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 thing that I think is really um, interesting about a vision like ours, which is to shift that frontier of care into people's homes and their daily lives is one that is critical for rural Americans because they have no choice. That said, it's also critical for many other Americans who are underserved. And, you know, as we've been, uh, you know, sort of telling the, the homeward story and, and building relationships with partners and, and uh, explaining how our model works for rural America, the next question we get almost inevitably is, well, when can you do this for my underserved urban populations? And the answer is not yet. You know, we have a very clear focus on, on who we need to serve first. But I think it speaks to um, the fact that, that you know, the, the broader long arc here is that there are healthcare disparities like this that exist all across America, you know, rural America being where it's often the worst, but all across America. And that, um, you know, as we're able to demonstrate that these solutions really work for people, that they have the potential to reach many more people. Um, the other thing I'll, I'll say is, you know, we've we've begun with a firm footing in America, but as you might also imagine, uh, these sorts of healthcare needs are global, and these challenges that people face with access to healthcare, you know, in the palm of their hands, in the comfort of their homes, uh, is just as acute and just as severe in places with uh, different different business models. And so, as we learn both how the solution works and also how to adapt what we're doing to other business models. I think the the reach of of the work we're doing uh, has the potential to extend across the world. Now let's we're talking about future here. Now let's talk about past with a lens of reflection. So if you mm -hmm. could go back in time and have a chat with that younger self, that younger self that have moved, you know, again to California and that was thinking about maybe starting something of your own. Let's say if you were able to sit down with that younger self and give that younger self a piece of advice for launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Mm. I think I would probably uh, grab a hold of my shoulders and shake myself and say, do not fall in love with technology. 
And I think that is probably the single biggest, uh, uh, you know, pitfall um, that I was I was a, a sort of subject to as a technologist. I'm trained, uh, you know, to to appreciate the power of technology, to be able to visualize what it might do in the future, and really extrapolate, uh, you know, potential outcomes. But the but the risk of that is uh, falling in love with the technology means that you might lose sight of the of the problem and. Pushing a technology into a market is a hundred times harder than uh, the technology being pulled into a market where there's a really clear and strong user need, you know, problem to be solved. So, uh, you know, I think this this skill set of really immersing in the problem space, being comfortable in the problem space before deciding to go after it, um, that's a skill that's taken me a long time to develop, and one that I uh, I wish I'd appreciated earlier. Um, I'd say that the other thing I learned about, have learned about problem finding is that there's a, um, a, a benefit to being a technologist or having a technology orientation when it comes to finding problems in that um, you can take a first principles approach. Uh, you can have a beginner's mind when you're looking at a problem and trying to understand it. Trying to understand it deeply from first principles means you're not going to fall into the trap of, of pattern matching incorrectly. Uh, which is a very you know easy trap to fall into, especially as an entrepreneur, especially as a technologist, where you you know you see a lot of patterns and you're looking to make decisions confidently and quickly. Um, but those, if you if you misidentify the problem, then you could be living with something that's heading you in the wrong direction for a long time. So uh, that second lesson for me has been uh, making sure that I give myself the time and space to take a first principles approach to validating a problem. I love it. Now, for the people that are listening, Amar, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? So uh, I'm at homewardhealth.com. So that's A. Kendale at homewardhealth.com. Uh, and uh, you can reach me at LinkedIn uh, at A. Kendale as well. Amazing. Well, hey, Amar, super nice chatting here. Thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Uh, it's been such a delight, Alejandro. Thank you so much for the opportunity. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.